I'm Doug Fullington. I'm the manager of audience education here at PMB. Welcome to our performance of Coppelia this evening. There's a lot to say about this ballet. There's history. There's the Balanchine production, which you'll see tonight. There's our own history with Coppelia here at PMB. We've had three different productions of Coppelia over the years since 1977. So all kinds of things to talk about. Um, I'll sort of start right in with the history of the ballet, but want to welcome your questions anytime. Happy to talk about just about anything. So feel free to interrupt me or interject or anything, and we'll just sort of go along those lines. Uh, but starting from the beginning, Coppelia premiered in Paris in 1870. It's really right at the end of the period of time where Paris was the center of ballet. Uh, it was just about to abdicate to St. Petersburg, Russia, which had drawn a lot of French artists. The Tsar was very interested in ballet. There was a big budget for ballet. There were a lot of creative people working in the theater there. France was having its own problems. It was about to uh, get into the Franco-Prussian War, and just for many reasons, uh, France was no longer going to be the center of ballet. Russia was, but Coppelia sort of snuck in right at the end. It was a big success when it premiered. It had music by Leo Delib, who was a little bit late to the scene as well as for being a ballet composer. He had a commission for half a ballet score in 1866. It was a ballet called La Source. We're going to do a shortened version of La Source, a, a non-plot version by Balanchine in next season, so you'll hear some more of his music. In 1867, then, he was commissioned to add some music to the pirate ballet, Le Corsair. We actually performed that particular music in our shortened production for our students last month. And then in 1870, he got this commission for the full-length Coppelia, which was very successful. 1876, he wrote a ballet called Sylvia, which was another full-length work based on uh, Greek mythology themes. And Tchaikovsky, who wrote Swan Lake in the next year, 1877, said if he had known Sylvia better, he wouldn't have written Swan Lake because he thought Sylvia was far superior to it. So that gives you an idea of the esteem in which, with which um, Delib was held. Uh, interesting story for Coppelia. I'm, I'm always very interested to read the press about this ballet. Uh, the press, depending who it is, takes very different uh, views. Some think it's a complete throwaway. Some think it's a really dark story, even though it comes off as a comedy. I just upstairs was reading the San Francisco Examiner review of a few weeks ago. We share this production with San Francisco Ballet, and they just performed it, sent it to us just three weeks ahead of our performances. So wardrobe was working hard to get their fittings done. But they said, you know, it's a comedy, but it has a cruel streak running through it. And it's, it's true, and it just sort of shows that the uh, 19th century audience just had a different way of looking at humor and a different way of looking at life. And we get a little window on that here. Like many ballet stories, Coppelia came from an existing work. But ballet was generally intended in the 19th century to be pretty light fare plot-wise. The heavy drama was stayed with opera and stayed with the theater because they were dealing with languages. You were singing in opera, you were speaking in theater. 
No one was really sure how much ballet could put over because of the lack of words. I think they've all they've been proven wrong since then over time, but that was a real uh, concern in the 19th century. So a lot of plots were quite light. Now Coppelia comes from E.T.A. Hoffman's *The Sandman*, which has a lot of dark, kind of grim aspects to it. Many stories, many fairy tales, as you may know, had really dark sides to them but when they were made into ballets those were sort of left left aside and just some characters were taken and some semblance of the story so what we've got here is a little town in eastern europe galicia and in the town we have a toy maker named dr copelius a little bit mysterious a little eccentric probably the topic of gossip because no one really knows him or takes the time uh, he apparently has a daughter who is very quiet and sits up in the window on the balcony overlooking the square of the town and reads most of the time, keeps to herself. Also in the town is a young woman named Swanilda, not a name you hear every day. Keep waiting for a Swanilda to come through our school because we get a lot of ballet named children coming up through, but not a Swanilda yet. She is engaged to Franz. Franz is it's kind of put over as, as a dope a little bit. He's got a wandering eye, thinks the daughter of Coppelius is beautiful, but he's engaged to Swanilda. So that's the gist of the, the problem in this ballet, is that Swanilda wants to get rid of this competition. So she uh, breaks into Coppelius's house. Actually, Franz and his friends have roughed poor Dr. Coppelius up in the town square and the poor man has dropped his key and Swanilda and her friends find it instead of giving it back they bust into the house and because they want to see what's going on they hear strange noises coming out they want to know who the daughter is and they see the daughter sitting there and they're so scared of her and finally realize she's one of the toys she's simply a puppet uh, someone brought up automatons last night in the uh, pre-performance talk and the history of them in the 19th century. Apparently there's an automaton museum in Paris and I had to admit I know very little about it, but it's something I want to look at for next time with Coppelia because it clearly was in you know the public's awareness when this ballet was, was made. So they realize there's no threat at all. This This daughter is simply a puppet, but Franz is also breaking into the house, not through the door. He's climbing up on a ladder and going to bust through a window to get into the poor Dr. Coppelius's toy shop. So Coppelius comes home, finds all these women there, chases them out, but Swanilda hides and she dresses up like the doll because she's going to teach them a lesson. And uh, there's a great pantomime conversation between Franz and Dr. Coppelius. You know, he's irate that Franz has broken in. He wants... He, uh, to be paid off in order to let Franz go. And Franz says, I have no money. And finally, the wheels are turning in Dr. Coppelius's mind. And he says, well, do you want to have a drink? Franz says, sure. And uh, so Dr. Coppelius uh, drugs his drink and Franz passes out. Then we start to get to know Dr. Coppelius a little more and realize that he he believes he can bring these automatons to life through magic he's got this sort of spell book and essentially the idea is you take the life force from a person and sort of put it on the puppet and it will come to life so he proceeds to do this and Swanilda plays along 
And it gives all it gives all kinds of opportunity then for the the leading lady to dance in all kinds of ways. She has the puppet dance, and then there are a number of um, national dances. These were really popular at the time. In the first act, there's a mazurka, there's a shardosh, and here in the second act, he gives her a fan, and uh, she does a Spanish bolero, and then a a little sort of kilt scarf, and she does a Scottish jig. These were very popular and. And just, uh, I think, important to say, uh, ballerina dancing this role would be expected to be able to do three things. One, dance, classical dance, vocabulary, point work, etc. Also, be a really good actress, be adept at pantomime, and, and able to get the audience to connect with her and feel for her. And third, be able to do folk dance, sort of balleticized folk dance. That was your sort of triple threat classical character dance, as we call it, and acting or pantomime. Those were all required in these 19th century ballets. So we get a feel for all of those in this act. So she plays along to the point where she's fully animated and just as, you know, has Dr. Coppelius that, you know, just is pulling him along. And then finally she sort of gets her behavior escalates and he's trying to calm, he's sort of thinking probably what have I, what have I done? And she succeeds in waking Franz up and she reveals that she, she's human and that the doll is sitting back in the corner and poor Coppelius is bereft. And, uh, but Swanil does one and she forgives Franz and off they go. Uh, Because they're going to get married because the next day is a festival of the bells in the town. The town has a new set of bells, which would have been very important uh, to a small town. The bells would tell everybody when to get up in the morning, when it was time to go to bed, when it was time to work, when it was time to go to church, uh, when there was an emergency. So the bells were important. And this third act is a sort of set of allegorical dances representing these hours of the day. So there's a, there was a corps de ballet representing the morning and a soloist representing dawn, soloist representing prayer, uh, a soloist and others that represented work. And uh, the soloist was a spinner. There was uh, discord and war. And that's in the balancing production. It's kind of crazy. I love that he kept it in. And then it was followed by Peace. And Peace had an olive branch. And then there were the hours of the evening and dancers representing folly and pleasure. And then that was that was the entertainment of the final act of the ballet. It was common to have a long first act that introduced everybody and laid out the story and the, the problem. And then a very intimate second act like we have here just with the main characters where they'd really interact. There's a lot of pantomime, a lot of specialty dances for the ballerina, and the story is essentially resolved. Then in the third act, you have some celebratory occasion, whether it's a wedding or a ball or this allegory of, of the day, uh, which is very unique uh, and it only really exists in this ballet. So this is a common setup that we have here in these French ballets. Uh, another interesting aspect in the third act is that the mayor will give any couples who get married on this festival day a dowry. So town government's going to give a dowry out to these uh, couples. And in the original, Dr. Coppelius shows up with his doll and 
essentially says, these kids have wrecked my property. I need to be paid. And Swanilda gives him her dowry to make things right. Another important feature in a lot of 19th century ballet plots was kind of not just righting wrongs or good triumphing over evil, but getting the balance back. That was important. So the balance was was put right by Swanilda giving Coppelius her dowry. Sleeping Beauty is a similar uh, uh, situation. I'll just take this on as a tangent for a second. If you're familiar with Sleeping Beauty, the problem at the beginning is that the king and queen didn't invite the fairy Carabas, because she was a wicked fairy, to the daughter's christening. Of course they're not going to invite her. But apparently they should have invited her, and that sets off the whole spell and all the problem. In the ballet in 1890, Carabas isn't killed later in the ballet. That, that in contemporary versions, we like to stick it to her and, you know, she's out of here. But in the original, you know, the spell was broken, and then they had a wedding, and by gum, they invited her to the wedding. They were not going to make the same mistake twice, and she shows up. And so the balance was, was uh, returned that sort of good and evil coexisting, it's just in a balance. And we have that in this original Coppelia. Now in the Balanchine version, the mayor pays off um, Dr. Coppelius and Swanilda keeps her dowry. I don't, I, I don't, know, if I don't know what the thinking was there, but uh, that always interests me when I see that. So, so that's the story of Coppelia. Um, it's... It is what it is. It's a, I don't think it's a fluffy story. I actually think there's a, a whole lot of unkindness in this ballet. And it just interests me that 19th century audiences are very willing to laugh at the misfortune of others, not condemning them at all. It's just a different aesthetic. It's a different th way of uh, uh, entertaining in the theater. And uh, this is a window on that world. And we don't see it as much uh, now. So it, there, there you have it. Um, long history for this ballet. Uh, it did go to Russia fairly early on. I think the Petipaw version, Marius Petipaw's sort of take on this was 1884. The Russians were always waiting for popular ballets in France and they'd take them immediately. And, but these ballets would really live in Russia. In France, things would go out of repertory and be forgotten. In Russia, they kept them in the repertory and just kept changing them and adding things all the way into the 20th century. So these ballets did live, and then they were eventually brought back to the West after the Russian Revolution, and Western companies started to dance them again, albeit with the sort of Russian uh, additions that had been made to them. For example, Franz in France was danced by a woman. Uh, there, was, there were, I think, fewer... Uh, I'm not sure if I'm absolutely right, but I do think there were fewer male dancers or bravura dancers late in the in the 19th century. But really, it was the audience was made up of uh, predominantly of men, and they liked to see women in pants roles. So women would dance the male leads, and that's that's how they did it. When the ballet went to Russia, it wasn't that way at all, and a man danced Franz. So new choreography was made for Franz in Russia, and then that was handed down over time. So that's an example of the kind of thing that would be changed as, as the ballet would progress through time. Uh, now, how do we get to this Balanchine version, 1974? Well, Balanchine 
grew up in Russia. He was born in 1904. When he was nine, he was sent to, he was enrolled in and sent to the Imperial Ballet School. It was a boarding school, and he really hated it. He was very homesick. They would shave all the boys' heads. They called him Rat. He ran away. They made him come back. He was really miserable. But Early on, you know, after your first year or second year, they start to cast, would cast the children in the ballets because the, the ballets all had children's roles, even one-act ballets. It was just how they created ballets. They were for adults and kids. And he loved being on stage. That was really a saving grace for him. I think it was just a, an escape and something magical. And he really loved it. And that really made him love ballet. So when Balanchine would restage these ballets at New York City Ballet periodically, he staged Nutcracker in 1954. Uh, there was a ballet called Harlequinade, which I think came in 65, which is a Commedia dell'arte ballet, lots of kids. And then in 74, Coppelia, lots of kids. And I think he did that because of the tradition, but also because he knew how much it meant to him. To, to be in those ballets. And I think it meant a great deal. So when he decided to do Coppelia, he asked his colleague, Alexandra Danilova, if she would help him stage it and if she would teach what she remembered because she, one, was a contemporary of Balanchine, maybe a year older, they grew up together. They were essentially a common law husband and wife when they were dancing for Diaghilev's Ballet Russe in the 1920s. Uh, then they sort of went separate ways. Balanchine came to the U.S., started School of American Ballet and eventually New York City Ballet. And Danilova had a huge career, particularly with the uh, Ballet Russe companies that came out of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. And she ended up in the States because with World War II, uh, several of those companies were on tour and they, were, they just got stuck. And uh, if you've seen the Ballet Russe movie, it sort of explains that. And she was a really great Swan Ilda. She had just, um, she had comedic timing. She had all the confidence in the world. She was just uh, terrific in this role. And Balanchine said, would you stage what you remember? And then I'll add things and I'll, I'll do the rest. So Balanchine did a new third act, uh, except for the Potida and Swan Ilda solo. But Danilova did most of the first and second acts, I think Balanchine made a new mazurka and Chardosh, the big group dances. So they collaborated together on this ballet, what they remembered and then new things by Balanchine. And uh, in the third act, the role of the corps de ballet is given to children. It's given to 24 girls. There are four groups of six. It's sort of an older and then they get younger, younger, younger. And they have different things to do based on what they've learned up to that point in time in, in, in their schooling. Uh, he also didn't use adult supernumeraries, you know, non-dancers in adult roles. He used older students. So it's a very young village. And uh, we have our uh, level sevens and eights, they're teens. And uh, we have about 50 students in each show. It's, it's really great. It's great for them. It's a beautiful production. Balanchine, you know, is known for being so progressive and sort of modernist, but when he did an old ballet, he was very, very faithful to the score and the story, and uh, the things he added that were new had a feel of the old. 
and uh, I, I love that uh, breadth about his choreography, and I, I love that we have some of these in our repertory. Now, here at PMB, we first did Coppelia in 1977, uh, before Kent Stoll and Francie Russell were here. For one year before that, Melissa Hayden, who had retired from uh, New York City Ballet, I think in 73, just before their Coppelia, uh, she was here as artistic director for a year and staged a version of Coppelia. Then after she left and Kent Stoll and Francie Russell came, Kent inherited those... I think he inherited the scenery and the costumes and staged a version of Coppelia, which was on the stage for all the way through their tenure through into the 2000s. Then in 2010, Peter acquired the Balanchine Coppelia, which held a lot of meaning for him. Uh, his family subscribed to New York City Ballet for many years, and they would take Peter as a boy. And after a performance of Coppelia, and that must have been pretty early on after it was first done, Peter's turned to his folks and said, you know, I'd like to, tr can I try this? Can I try dancing? So they enrolled him in the School of American Ballet and, and now he's here. And now we have the Balanchine Coppelia. So we've had three productions of this ballet. It was our second full length after the Lou Christensen Nutcracker, which was 1975. Two years later, we got Coppelia and Swan Lake, I think would have been the third full length. That was in 81. So uh, this one goes way, way back. There's a nice exhibit that our archivist Sheila Dietrich and Robin Emerson from the costume shop have put together in our archival exhibit in the, in the front lobby that has uh, images and materials going all the way back to 77. You can kind of walk around the table and it traces, traces through the years. It's nice. So the as goofy as this ballet might seem, it's figured fairly prominently in our repertory all along. So... Uh, uh, you know, that said, it's the dancing roles for Swan Ilda and Franz are big, especially Swan Ilda. It's a huge role. takes a lot of stamina. You know, these things have to come off like they're really easy, but they're kind of gut busters up there. So tonight you'll see Lita Biasucci. Lita had a real breakthrough in Coppelia last time we did it because she was learning it but not cast to perform. And then there were injuries and then she performed with James Moore and she was great. And so uh, she's coming back to it the second time. She's with Benjamin Griffiths. Ryan Cardea is Dr. Coppelius. Ryan is a great character actor. This is uh, his first time last week in this role. All three of them, that's why I got the extra chair, all three of them will be down here with Peter Bull afterwards. So it'll be, if, if you want to come and talk to them, it'll be a great time to hear from all three of them about uh, dancing this ballet, especially I think this second act where it's really just the three of them together on stage for all that time. So do come down if you'd like at the end to hear from them. The, the Q&A is always great. And also the garage empties out, which is also great. So uh, maybe I'll stop there for a moment and just see if you'd, if you'd like to ask anything in particular, happy to answer anything that I can. Sure. You know, it's a good point. You, you know, Dr. Coppelius is an older man, and we have all three of our doctors are company members, William Lin Yi, uh, Ezra Thompson, and Ryan. Um, these are all veteran Drosselmeyers in Nutcracker, and I think that 
carries over now to Dr. Coppelius, but it is something they do really have to think about in their sort of physical deportment and how they move on stage, because uh, it takes a lot of work to be convincing that you're moving more stiffly, uh, you're less physically spry. Peter did the uh, Dr. Coppelius at least the first time out in 2010, and maybe last time, I forget, but he, he didn't sign himself up this time. So uh, I think he said it was tiring. <laughs> you can ask him at the end. Yeah, Kent's done it too. Yeah, there are photos of both Kent and Peter in, in their respective productions up, up there in the lobby. So yeah. I don't think Balanchine did it. Balanchine did Drosselmeyer, and he did Don Quixote, but he, I don't think he did Dr. Coppelius. So the tradition of directors getting on stage there. It's kind of fun, so. But good question, thanks. I, th I think it's, uh, uh, it's to give opportunity, but I think, yeah, it, it, it takes some convincing, you know, in the, in the delivery, yeah. Anybody else with a question? We share the production. It was a co-production when we uh, were planning it in 2010, which essentially means they paid for half of it. And we co-own it. We built it all here. All the costumes we built just right next door uh, in our shop. They're, they're really amazing. But I always say how great our shop is, and they are. It's, it's terrific. And then Fremont is where our scenic shop is, and everything was built and painted there. Um, San Francisco, this was their second time doing it, and uh, the timing was tight. As soon as they were done, it was sent right up to us because we had to get going on fittings for, uh, for, for this production. It's lots of people to fit in costumes, multiple fittings. Uh, so we just, we figured the tight timing w would work. It's interesting, not many, Really, nobody else was doing the Balanchine Coppelia until we acquired it in 2010 with San Francisco. Then the Dresden Ballet Company, Dresden Semper Oper, was interested in it, and they liked our designs by Roberta Guidi de Bagno. She's uh, Italian. She lives in Rome. They wanted them tweaked a little bit, so she, sort of with uh, Peter and uh, uh, Helgi Thomason's blessing, sort of took the designs and morphed them a little bit for Dresden. And then Boston acquired it, and Boston bought our old scenery and costumes from us, and then added to them and sort of refurbished them, and they're doing the Balanchine Coppelia with our old sets and costumes in Boston. And Judith Fugate is the stager for all of them. She had not staged Coppelia before. She was in the Balanchine production in 74. She's the friend who finds the key. I think it's Angelica Generosa tonight who finds the key on the ground. Uh, and she came and staged it for us, and then San Francisco, and then Dresden, and then Boston. So she's got a lot of work out of, <laughs> out of this production. So uh, it's nice. She comes, and she knows every role and teaches every role and works with our ballet masters. And Peter also assists as well. But Judy's the one who is the representative of the George Balanchine Trust. and. Uh, and she was back this time too. For we sort of got it up and going, and she came in for two weeks and uh, coached and uh, got it on stage. And uh, and so here we are. This is our third time out for the Balanchine production. Yes, sir. 
Uh, the other couples, Leslie Rausch and Jerome Tisserand, and they're with William Lin Yi as the doctor. And then uh, Noelani Pantastico, it was her first time uh, with Jonathan Peretta and Ezra Thompson was their doctor. So just three couples, because we only had seven shows, we just uh, scheduled it during a regular repertory run, which is seven, seven shows. And so just three couples this time. Two casts of children and uh, about three casts of the, the solo uh, solos in the third act. Yeah. Yes, please. Oh, I hope I get this right. Yeah. Okay. The wheat in the the uh, first act. I believe it. If you shake it, and depending what you hear, it lets you know if your love is true or not. And I think she doesn't hear anything, so she's doubting Franz. And there's a dark moment, and uh, she runs off stage, and then Franz leaps into a solo. Which uh, Arlene Croce, I don't know if you remember her, she used to uh, write brilliantly for The New Yorker week after week during that sort of, sort of golden era for uh, New York City Ballet in the 70s. And she wrote the best review of Coppelia. It's in the Balancing Complete Stories of the Great Ballets. If you have that big book, I think we sell used copies upstairs. The whole thing's printed. And she... she discusses this section and also how odd she thought that Franz could be so happy afterwards and, and go into the solo, but the show must go on, I guess. So, uh, so, so that's what I know. I, I hope I'm right. Yeah. Sure, one more. Did Carrie have her baby? Carrie Imler did have her baby, yes. Uh, Marcus Robert Miller whom I don't think we've seen in person yet, but I think we're expecting a visit soon. Lindsay Deck and Corel Cruz also had their little boy. We have a lot of babies at PMB. It's pretty nice. So uh, Lindsay and Carrie, I think, will be back. Lindsay will start next season. I'm not exactly sure Carrie's timing, but we'll, we'll see them both back. Children in tow. So that'll be fun. So yeah, thanks for asking. So we're at time, so I want to let you go, but I want to remind you, you can come down here afterwards for the Q&A with all three of the uh, uh, dancers in leading roles tonight with Peter Bowl. And uh, thank you for being here and supporting the ballet, and have a great evening.